doing well? Good to see everyone. Um, <clears throat> good to see a few visitors. I believe we have some Armagh men in the room at the minute. Can we welcome our visitors? Um, are we excited about the summer? I heard Derry shouted, come on, this is a great opportunity for us to, you know, we're always in mission, but this is a, a week we set apart. I'm just excited this year. I don't know why 130 Americans come in. I'm looking forward to being part of the team. Last year I was part of the building team with which John and Declan led very well, Dave and, and so on. I'm, I'm just so excited for that again this year. But imagine, imagine getting out in the streets and the kids and, and the various things that are going to happen. You know, um, I'm just excited about that. I hope we all are too. So, so here we go, ladies and gentlemen. We have um, two weeks ago, Patty spoke on Pentecost and how when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and started to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And this is what it says. This, this kind of sets up the reason we're doing this series. So we've got this series called The Wonder of God. Are we amazed by God? Yeah. Yes. Hopefully it'll be quite uh, reactionative today, if that's such a word, because I like to get a little bit of encouragement. I remember, as Rachel said, two years ago, I think, was the first time I ever did this. It is quite scary. But um, I was just so encouraged by, um, by everyone in the audience, so hopefully that'll be the same today. So th this sort of sets the background for, for where we're going over this next few weeks. We haven't set a time limit on this, but I think it's going to be a great series. This is what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse, verses 5 to 12. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly, utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each one of us hears them in our own native language? And then it goes on to say, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So if you're wondering what they were saying in these other languages, that's what these men were speaking. They were declaring the wonders of God in their own tongues. And then amazed, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? And we want to, we want to answer that question over the next few weeks and, and months or whatever, how long this series runs for. So we're going to embark on this. And today um, we're going to look at a, people, a group of people who lost their wonder, who lost their sense of amazement. Um, last summer... I was challenged by a wise man to go back to the Gospels. And I would encourage you to do the same. Go back and underline everything that Jesus ever said or Jesus ever did. And it'll really, it'll really get you thinking. It'll really make, it, it certainly made me think about certain things and, and, and change my perspective on a few things, if I'm honest. So um, today's message comes a bit from that. And then around Easter time, there was a series in the life of Jesus. And I love documentaries which you probably know for those of you who know me. And this particular documentary, it, again, the way it, it taught the life, it came everything came from scripture. And I was just blown away. And this particular story stood out to me a lot. So a couple of weeks ago when Patty was suggesting we do this series, there's only one way I wanted to do this. And it's quite hard-hitting because, let, let's set a wee bit of background. Anyone like map work? Like maps? No. At least, we're, at least we're honest, and thank you for your thing. I, I love maps. I was a geography person at school. Thank you, Gordon. Uh, we're the nerds of the, the church, I guess. But I, I, love, I love looking back at the history and the geography of the Holy Land. In fact, I, really, I was sitting to Carolyn the other day. I really want to trip, take a trip to the Holy Land. I submitted that to the gentleman the other day. And I'm, I'm coming 40 next year. Believe it or not, I might look about 18. But as part of my... As part of my holiday, that's, that's where I might 
end up. You never know if the Lord wills. So I, I'm excited to go there, but I, I was just so excited about, about, about Jesus, what he did, where he went, and the places he actually visited, and the places where he taught, the places where he carried as, as, as miracles and so on. So basically, to, in a brief nutshell, um, today's text is going to be found in Mark chapter 6, if you want to turn to there whilst we go through the background. But little is known. We, we hear about the birth of Jesus. We then hear about uh, Mary and Joseph uh, for their own safety and for the life, to protect Jesus' life. They flee to Egypt. They then come back and they settle in a little village called Nazareth. All right? And uh, the, you don't hear much about his childhood. When he's 12 years old, the family go to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And they, they, they're on their way home. I think they're a day into the journey home when they realize Jesus isn't with them. He's 12 years old. So they head back to Jerusalem. And for three days, they looked for him. And what I thought, could you imagine Mary? She's been given this task to give birth to the Messiah and look after him. And now he's lost. <laughs> Can you imagine the worry, the, the craziness that would have been? But he, they finally find him in God's house. And he's a little bit He's almost a little bit indignant. You know, where did you, where did you expect to find me? And what was interesting, the people there, these older scholars were sitting and they were actually marveling at, uh, at his intelligence, at his understanding and his grasp of the scriptures. They were totally marveling at it. And then after that story, uh, you pick up when he's about 30 years of age. So he's about to start his ministry. He gets baptized in the River Jordan by John. He is then tempted in the desert for 40 days. Uh, and then he starts his ministry, performing his first public miracle at, at Cana, where he turns the water into wine, and sets about proclaiming the good news of God, that the kingdom of God is drawn near. And what he does is he goes around, if you, this is it in a nutshell, he drives out impure spirits, he heals the sick, he teaches in synagogues, teaches parables by the water's age, calls the twelve disciples, calms storms, performs miracles, and starts to gather a following. He starts to get pretty famous. Uh, so his reputation starts to precede him. And one thing that really stood out to me, Jesus was actually based in a little town called Capernaum. Okay, we always think he was kind of in Nazareth and he'd be based there. He was actually in Capernaum, which is about 25 miles from Nazareth. And uh, while he's there, around, around that time, he, a lot of things happen there. And that's why I actually Googled recently, I think there's a map here of it, um, map to show where the miracles took place, map to show where all these things take place, you know. So you can see there in Capernaum, it's maybe not that clear, but please do go home and spend some time with us. Uh, while he's there, he heals Jairus' daughter, uh, Simon's mother-in-law, two blind men, a mute person, a man with a withered hand, and many, many other miracles, but not very much happens in Nazareth where he grew up as a young man. Now, three out of the four Gospels include the story we're about to read about today. So we're going to read from Mark's Gospel, uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. And please, we're going to go to other references in the Bible, but please stick to this because I really want to go back and, and analyze exactly what it says. So Jesus is now returning home. It's not his first time home. This is now his second time. I want to stress that his first time. Uh, you can read about this in Matthew and I believe Luke. But now we're reading in the book of Mark where it's now his second time home. So this is what it says. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and, then, and many who heard him were amazed. Say amazed. That's verse 2. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? The people didn't deny his wisdom or the signs and wonders that he was performing. 
But then by verse three, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Say offense. So basically, verse two, they are amazed. And by verse three, they are offended. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And then verse six, he was amazed at their lack of faith. So let's pray. God, we thank you for, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it truly is a lamp onto your feet. We thank you, God, for what you've done in this church already today. And I pray, Lord, that you would, you would do something in this church this morning, God, that we wouldn't just leave informed, but we would leave transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have you ever been rejected? Ever been rejected? I'm sure at one stage in our lives we've been rejected. Okay, I've been rejected many times uh, by Carolyn a few times <laughs> in our road to marriage, but we finally got there. Um, and if you're reading this for the first time, you know, if you're reading this for the first time, you're, you're reading about all the miracles that Jesus performs in the book of Mark. And I, if, if you want to really get in, the book of Mark's a good place to start for the, the Gospels because I believe the book of Mark was written to the Romans and they had to write it speedily because they had such busy lives, they couldn't possibly, you know, read the whole thing. So it's, it's a very good place to start. But you're thinking, right, he's going home to his hometown. They'll roll out the red carpet. They'll welcome him home. They'll give him the party that he deserves. But it's much different, isn't it? It's much different to what you would probably have expected. And if, if we're honest, you know, sometimes when we have been rejected, it, it cuts deep. I know I went for a job one time and I didn't get it and I, I wondered why, you know, but nowadays I'm, I'm actually very thankful. Instead of a, a rejection, it was more of like a, I was being redirected, you know, and I'm, I'm actually quite thankful that that rejection took place. But have you ever rejected out in the, the streets? I remember a couple of years ago, we were giving out flyers for I Heart Dairy. And there were people taking them, just, you know, a couple of steps down the road. They're all lying there. You know, they, they reject, they're like, I don't want to hear that. And if I'm honest, I was a bit offended, right? Which is probably the, the wrong thing to think. Because when I think back, I, I remember at university and people trying to talk to me about Jesus, and I rejected them. And sometimes, you know, Jesus experienced reject, rejection. He, in fact, he expected it. So he, need, he knows how to deal with it. And this was a 25-mile journey from, from Capernaum, where they were based, and it, it was not a visit home to the family. In verse one, it says, Jesus was accompanied by his disciples. And I kind of wondered, why did he bring the disciples with him? Now, if you read on in Mark six, Jesus does not let his rejection stop him. In fact, in verse seven, it says, Jesus went around teaching from village to village. I mean, how many of us, sometimes we get our first sign of rejection and we stop what we're doing there. Oh, game over, I've been rejected, I can't do this. But Jesus goes on. In fact, just because the... Just because the people of Nazareth didn't see Jesus for who he really was didn't stop him being the son of God. Didn't stop him fulfilling the plan that God had for him. He even goes on to instruct his disciples in verse 11 of Mark 6. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And, you know, this is, it was almost like a training for the disciples. Like to show them what it was going to be like for them. When they were sent out, there were times they were accepted and there's times they were rejected. So if that's you today, maybe that ties in with the word that Rachel had about your job. It's not actually, you're maybe not getting rejected. Maybe you're just getting redirected. So just, you know, stick with it. God has a plan for your life and it's a perfect plan. And those times I've been rejected have been the best things that's ever happened to me. You know, so stick with it, guys. Wherever you're at, keep going. 
What was the result of the rejection of Jesus? Look at verse 5. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And this is what it says. He was amazed at their lack of faith. We'll look at that in a second. What a letdown. In Mark 5, he had just came from, he had just raised Jairus' daughter from the dead and healed the woman with, of bleeding for 12 years. He had just performed those two incredible miracles. But he gets to Nazareth. He can't do anything except heal a few sick people that were there. He was able to con uh, continue with his miraculous ministry. And this summer, guys, we're looking at the wonder of God. This is the definition definition of wonder, a feeling of amazement and admiration caused by something beautiful, remarkable, or unfamiliar. Isn't Jesus beautiful? Remarkable. And perhaps, well, hopefully not unfamiliar. In verse 2, it tells us many who heard him were amazed. And today, and then, of course, by the very next uh, verse, they're offended. They're taking offense at him. And I wonder today, where do we stand? If we have offense and amazed, where are we? on that spectrum, you know? Because essentially that's where everybody will be in some way or another. And our, our prayer for this summer is for us to go, to move away along the amazed spectrum. And I want to suggest four possible explanations for how these people lost their wonder in Jesus by examining this text. So here we go. And can I just say, guys, this is for me as much as everybody. In fact, the four things that we're about to talk about, I've probably experienced at some stage this week. So, um, so let's go for it. Number one is religion. If you look at number th verse three, the people ask, isn't this the carpenter? And then this is the important bit. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? In Jewish culture, you would never call anyone um, you know, by their mother's name. You'd never say, hey, there's Helen's son. You'd always say, hey, there's Billy's son. It was offensive, actually, to, to call someone by their, their, uh, by their mother's name. And even if Joseph was dead at this stage, they would still call Jesus by the name of his father. And I would argue that these people didn't know the father. They were bound up in the religion, and I don't mean Joseph in that. The word religion, this is interesting. Anyone ever do Latin at school? Latin. I spent three years of my life wasted doing Latin. No offense. <laughs> but now, actually, this is quite, uh, quite good. Thank you. Three years. Um, the, word, the, the word religion comes from the Latin word religare. You can check this up, which means to bind or to tie up. Isn't that interesting? Because in, in John 10, 10, it says, I have come that they, have they may have life and life to the full. And many of the people in Nazareth were very familiar with the messianic prophecies. If we look back at the Old Testament from the very start of Genesis, there's prophecies of the one who would come to rescue Israel and deliver them from their oppressors. This was known as the Messiah. The word Messiah is derived from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is translated, one who is anointed. The noun comes from the, the verb to anoint, which was a ceremonial process involving the coronation of a king and the commissioning of priests throughout the Old Testament. It refers to a promised descendant of King David who will redeem the Jewish people and reign on the Davidic throne. And this is what these people were looking for. They were, they were yearning for this Messiah who would come and rescue. Remember, the Jews at this time were under the, under the massive persecution of the Romans. So they were expecting this king, he would come with a big, big sword and basically take the Romans out and lead the Israel nation back to the most powerful nation in the world as they once were. Remember, these guys were in the synagogue. They were in church. They had a, a, there was a fair idea that they were well aware of the scriptures that promised the Messianic king. This is what, you know, go, go back to the Old Testament, guys. Some scholars believe there's more than 300 prophecies about Jesus. More than 300. If you, it's fascinating. Go back and look at the, the, the it's incredible. 
Isaiah 9, 67, we're familiar with this one from Christmas. For a child will be born unto us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. This is where they got this idea of the king. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and evermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Then in Daniel it says... Uh, chapter 7 verses 13 to 14 I saw in, in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like the son of man talking about Jesus and he came to the ancient of days and, pres- and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him that would include the Romans his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed so these people we're taking these prophecies and they're expecting this king that it, it didn't really fit in their head when Jesus came. But if they had read on in the scriptures, they could have gotten more. Like in, in, the, word of, in the book of Micah, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphra, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And then from Zechariah, Verse 9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. You see, they expected a king on a big horse with a sword, but Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey. So many of the Jews were expecting a messianic figure in the form of King David, someone who would lead a military crusade and take them away from the situation they were currently in. And Jesus was not the figure they had in mind. This is interesting, right? We talked about offense. The word offended here in this passage is the Greek word scandalon. It's where we get the word scandal and literally means stumbling block. So their religion had become a stumbling block or even trapped. These people had become trapped in their religion. Religion for these people was actually the stumbling block to their faith. And so for many of us, it can be the same if we're honest. The Nazarenes, like so many of the Jews at that time, had a, an idea of what to expect, but they didn't look at all the scriptures. How many times do we do the same? How many times do we pick the scriptures that we like and are comfortable with, and then you read something else and it cuts you and you go, ooh, I might leave that one. We focus on the parts of the Bible that appeal to us and leave the ones we don't like. The passages that may offend us or perhaps cause us to get uncomfortable. Who likes getting uncomfortable? <laughs> None of us, right? None of us like getting uncomfortable, but it's not what we're called to do. We may even have to step out of the safety of our comfort zones. And as a church, I believe that's where God's calling us to do, not just for the last few weeks or months, but I believe for years. I believe God's calling us to the street. I believe God's calling us to get out there. Is that comfortable? Probably not. Probably not. But you know what? We're not doing it in our strength. And we're confident that God's taking us here. If we want to know who Jesus, for who he really is, If we want to know Jesus for who he really is, we have to clear away the religious fog. When such powerful freedom has been made available to us in Christ, why would we tie ourselves up in religion? We engage in religious rules as a way to connect with God and develop a sense of control. Yet when God sends an invitation of relationship, it's a response to love, not a list of rules. It also takes vulnerability and a movement out of our comfort zones. Much of the rejection Jesus experienced was from the religious people of the day. Read through the Gospels, you'll see it all the way through. One of my favorite occasions, and I remember Jimmy 
talking to me about this when I first became a Christian. You probably have no remembrance of this, Jimmy. I just saw you today. This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Woe to you. This is in Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. If you read James chapter 1, we see what true religion is. This is what true religion is. This is what James says in the book in chapter 1. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Isn't that cool? Isn't that brilliant? That's the, that's the religion that, that God's looking for. And there's something there I want to stress, guys. From being polluted by the world, do you know what that is? Holiness. It's kind of a word that's difficult to define. It's difficult for us to comprehend. You know, because I'm sure everyone in this room has a, a differing view on holiness. Celine gave me a book recently that I've just started yesterday because I was preparing for this. And already, I just love it. Because I love the definition, love the start. And it's something we believe again as a church that we're being called to. That's something we want everyone to really step into. Be thou holy because I am holy. It's the first I learned it when I was a child. You know, I think it's so, so important. Because of religion, the people of Nazareth were, were trapped. They didn't see Jesus for who he really was. When you're religious, you become entitled. You start to focus on the small things and you start to complain. Three days, we talked the song today about passing through the Red Sea. You know, three days after passing through the Red Sea, after watching the most powerful army in the world be disseminated in the waters, the children of Israel started to complain. Three days. When you start to complain, you lose honor. If you look at verse four, Jesus says this, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives and his own home. Only recently, if I'm honest, have I understood what true honor is. I used to think honor was standing up and applauding someone for what they've done or an achievement or respecting for what they, what, what they did. And you know what? That's right. That's true. That's good. That's part of honor. But like many other things, Paul de Kock taught us what true honor is. And he said this. He said, true honor is about looking at people how God sees them. Isn't that true? And looking at the gifting and looking at what God has put in them. And sometimes, you know, we're all guilty, and I'm guilty of this, of, of saying stuff. But whenever you think about this, how does God see that person? It kind of changes your perspective. Sometimes in my work, primary school, you get a little bit difficult characters. But sometimes I have to remember parents and pupils. How does God see those people? And it changes my whole spin on things. And I'm, I, I can't possibly speak negatively because God loves those people. That's the harvest. That's the harvest. If the Nazarenes had thought about this, then maybe their outcome with Jesus would have been different. And it's so sad that religion became a stumbling block or a trap for these people. Number two, familiarity. How many times can we become familiar with Jesus? Look at verse three. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brothers of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? They knew his brothers by name. Aren't his sisters here with us? That suggests that his sisters are still living there in Nazareth. Maybe the brothers have been married and have gone elsewhere. Now, Nazareth was a town of between 400 and 500 people. They would have known exactly who Jesus They grew up with this guy. Many of them, they would have played with him as a child, or their children perhaps would have played with him. They were, they were familiar with who he was. And my question is, do we ever get familiar with things? 
I know I do all the time. I learned the hard way with Carolyn's cooking the other day. Getting a little bit too familiar, but whenever we start our job, everything's new. Everything's like, you know, fresh, and we really give our, our best and then become a bit familiar with it. Sometimes I go to things at, at work and it's just people complaining all the time, you know? And, and we can't do that. We can't, we can't enter that. There's people, oh, I'm so stressed out. It's June, we're so busy. How many times have you heard teachers saying, don't you say we're winding down, we're actually winding up in June? Maybe not, maybe that's just teachers say that, but people, people complain. You know, we, we complain about things, and actually that's a gift from God. I prayed for my job. God gave me my job. Am I going to complain about it? I may not like everything, but I'm not going to complain. But as time goes on, maybe we don't get that promotion. Maybe we don't get, things don't work out the way we first hoped. The things we used to love, we now loathe. And maybe it's the same in our homes, taking things for granted. Do we ever take our spouse for granted, our children for granted, our, our very home for granted? The things we have, we complain and, and we take these things, maybe we become familiar with it. If you have money in your bank, your wallet, and some spare change, you're among the top 8% of the world's wealthy. Do we ever take church for granted? You know, um, in church, this particular building, it kind of feels like we've been here forever. Do you ever get that? I've heard people talk about listening in the Millennium Forum. It seems like a distant memory. And, and those were great days, and I loved those days. And, but it seems like we, we kind of become familiar with our space here. I was looking back through my photographs, and this time last year, this was all dust and dirt and concrete, and there was like silver tin here. And you couldn't really picture it like it is now. You know, and like we were like, oh, Lord, why are we going to do this? And, but we trusted in him. And people were saying about the drive-through and in here and all these things. And we didn't have a clue, to be honest with you. But you know what? We, we prayed. And we listened. And we were obedient. And this is where we are today. And sometimes we can take these things for granted. And guys, we were able to purchase this for £350,000. There was a guy in here last year in the summer. He's a sound engineer, an expert. And he looked and he said, you know the, um, the tiles on the top of the, uh, the, the soundproof tiles upstairs? They alone are worth £300,000 approximately. Look, look at our venue. Look at, look at where we're based. Look at the location. Look at the lighthouse towards the city to tell people Jesus is alive. Do we ever become familiar with that? Sometimes they come to, I don't like this room. But that's just a stepping stone to get upstairs. God's given us this building, guys. Of, I don't know how many people can fit upstairs, but I don't think he's given us to stay down here. I think he's given us this to fill up there. Not for our glory, not to say how good we are, to say how good he is. You know, can you imagine now, if, you know, with the transport hub, with Ebrington, with everything that's going on, it's incredible. Sometimes we get familiar, we forget. And do we ever take our own salvation for granted? You know, we've become, we're Christians so long, we forget about it way back at the start. I know when I was a Christian at the start, um, I was so excited, I wanted to get involved in everything. And someone had to come along and say, hey, whoa, if you do that, you're going to get burnt out in a year or two years or three years. And I kind of didn't really listen and perhaps that did happen. But you're, you're so excited. You want to get involved in everything. You want to tell everyone about Jesus. You want to tell everyone about what he's done for you. The word familiar, this is interesting again from our Latin. The word familiar comes from familia. The meaning, household servant. The word familiar comes from the Latin word household servant. How many times do we treat Jesus like a household servant? Is our prayer time spent with thanksgiving and realization of what he's done for us? Or is it just a list of orders? Can you do this? Can you do that? that that's, when, that's when we become familiar. 
I wonder if our familiarity with Jesus has hindered us from seeking a more deeper, more personal relationship with him. We can be so familiar with Jesus that we lose sight of how great he is. Many of us have been going to church our whole lives. Like the people of Nazareth, many of us have grown up with Jesus. They had the facts, but they didn't have the faith. They had information, but they didn't have the revelation. They knew Jesus in their heads, but they didn't know him in their hearts. Let's not let our familiarity of Jesus take away from our sense of wonder. Number, number three, fear. This is interesting. This is one thing I found. Um, the history records tell us that there was a small village about six miles from Nazareth that was called um, Sepphoris. Uh, it was probably at the time when Jesus was a young boy, and there was basically a rebellion. They rebelled against Rome. The result of that was disastrous. The 15,000 soldiers were employed and the village was burnt to the ground. Around 2,000 Jews were crucified as a way of stamping their authority on the eye. This is the Romans. Rome allowed their subjects to self-govern on one condition that they bowed the knee to Caesar and accepted him as king. The elders of Nazareth would have been aware of the consequence, consequences, not just for Jesus. You see, Jesus knew what he was going to. He was going to the cross. But it wouldn't just be for Jesus. It was for the entire village if this messianic prophecy had been fulfilled. There would have been fear that the same consequences would happen, happen to them. And how many of us don't step into our full relationship with Jesus out of fear? This is something I get all the time. To be honest, this is quite fearful standing up here. But is it going to stop us? Absolutely not. Maybe you're hearing this and you're a journey to faith and you're afraid of making the step of becoming a Christian. That was me. I was afraid of what I would have to give up. You don't actually give up anything. You get everything. Perhaps you feel God's calling you into something and you're afraid to step out and you know it's the right thing to do. And I know there's so many people in this room of things burning in their hearts and they're afraid. I've spoken to people and they're like, oh, I would love to do this. And you're going, bring it. You know, as Patty said a few weeks ago, let us know. There's things that we would love to get involved if, you're, if, you, are, if you believe God is putting this in your heart. But don't let fear stop you. I love the story of David and Goliath. Um, it's one of my favorite Stories in the Bible, I suppose the name kind of rings a bell, but um, you had the Israelites on one side and you had the Philistines, two massive armies, and they were based basically, I, I watched a great documentary of this recently, they were sort of on a, on a valley floor, and they were kind of, both sides were at the top of the, the valley, and no one wanted to go in, because if you went in, you were given up ground, you were vulnerable. And how many of us don't want to give in because they feel vulnerable? You know... And what happened was the Philistines sent down Goliath and he was there and he was um, challenging the Israelites. He was a huge soldier. He was a giant. Um, it tells us in the Bible exactly how tall he was, but he was the champion. Everyone of the Israelites were afraid. And we pick up the story in 1 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 17 and verse 8. Goliath stood and, I think the words are on the screen here, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I will defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Fear had gripped them. This intimidation went on for days, morning and night. And then the shepherd boy, David, comes along. He wasn't even a soldier. He was a shepherd boy. He comes along to give his brother sandwiches. And do you know what I think? I think David kind of thought, you know, what's going on here? And he said, oh, there's a giant and he's doing all these threats. And last week it struck me as Alan Graham was speaking. I wonder did David remember back to the promised land? Do you remember the spies who came back in the tent and said, we're not going into the land because there's giants 
And then they had to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness before they got their true inheritance. I wondered in the back of his mind, I go, boys, do you not remember this story? I don't remember how the, the two spies, and, the, and we went down and God handed all the various places into their hands. And I, I'm sure he was a bit agitated. And then, of course, he says, look, I'll go and fight this guy. I'll, I'll take him on. So he tries on the ar armor. That doesn't work. But he goes with what God has given him. And this is what he said, right? He goes to fight Goliath. And we pick up the story again in the first Samuel 17, and it's 45 to 49 again. I think the words on the screen. This is what David says. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. I don't believe Goliath had a chance. Because David was coming in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of armies. And guys, if you're struggling with something today and you have fear, you need to know this. The Lord Almighty is with you. The God of the armies of Israel is with you. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that this is not by sword or spear but that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into your hands. Someone needs to know today that the battle is the Lord's. It's not your battle. The battle is the Lord's. I've read that many times in Scripture, and it's been such an important thing. And this is what it says. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. He didn't walk. He didn't run away. He ran to it. How many of us run away, or we kind of approach it with a bit of fear? He ran. And the truth is, guys, you know, David had a sling in his hand, right? That there sling, there was three different groups within infantry, for, within warfare. First of all, you had the, um, the cavalry, the horseback. Secondly, you had the infantry, which Goliath was, but then you had the most devastating of all, the artillery. And these consisted of bows and arrows, but also what was called slingers. Slingers were guys with slingshots. They could, they could knock a bird out of the sky in flight, and they could hit people from 200 yards. So David's running towards him with a sling that God had put in his hand, taught him how to use, knocks the Philistine in the head, and knocks him clean out. And, and guys, we can't be crippled in our fear. We can't allow fear to stop us from moving into what God has for us because that's going to become a stumbling block, a trap. The enemy tries to whisper lies into your ears. and don't The enemy's a liar. Don't listen. When I was at school, did anyone get their injection called a BCG booster at school? One of my not-so-favorite memories, please don't judge me on this, but I remember at school the older pupils used to tell us that um, when you go into the room, there's a big machine and it goes into your arm and... They take stuff out and they put stuff in and they told us all these horror stories. And uh, I'll never forget, I was sitting in science and the lady came to lead us to the executioning room. Uh, and I'll never forget that walk. I didn't want to act afraid because friends, you know, you, don't, you have to act cool. But I, I'll never forget the words I said when I went into the room. Where's the machine? <laughs> and, I, and the lady was like, what? I said, oh, no, no problem. Only then did I realize it was all a lie. And it's not the same with the devil. He puts things in your mind and then you get there and you go, I know my, you know, things have happened to me in the past and I've been expecting this stuff. And then you get there and you go, it's not actually here. It's all lies all along. So don't let fear put you off. You see, the enemy tries us to get us to focus on our flaws rather than our faith. When we focus on our faults, we take or focus off God who equips us, the Holy Spirit who empowers us and Jesus who encircles us. Here's the pattern. First of all, you, for, it's all to do with obedience. Then you need courage. And then you get confidence. For David, he had the courage to do it. Why? Because he was obedient to what God said. And when he saw that, he got the confidence that led him on. 
And here's the thing, guys, the only known antidote to faith is, or sorry, to fear is faith. John Piper says this, the presence of hope and the invincible sovereignty of God drives out fear. Look at verse six in our text for today. Jesus said this, it says this actually, sorry. He was amazed at their lack of faith. He was amazed at the lack of faith of the Nazarenes. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you read all four gospels, you'll read 32 times how other people were amazed at Jesus. There's only two times in scripture that Jesus was amazed and has to do with faith. First of all was the centurion's servant. Remember the centurion who came, the Roman centurion? Jesus was amazed at his faith and his daughter was healed. But here, it's the other way around. He was amazed at their lack of faith. And that's why not many miracles could take. He couldn't do very much. Rick Warren says this, fear is a self-imposed prison that will keep you from becoming what God intends you to be. You must move against it with the weapons of faith and love. Perhaps the people of Nazareth were afraid of what the future would hold. But Corey Ten Boom says this, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Don't let fear take away your wonder of God. And then finally, guys, final point. So we had, we had religion, we had familiarity, and we had fear. And this is the fourth one. If you look at John chapter one, I think the word's on the screen here. It's verses uh, 43, 46. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida, right? Town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then what are Nathanael's response? You'll probably know it. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. And if you look at the text here, Nathanael's from Bethsaida. It's about 25 miles away from Nazareth. Nazareth was a small and significant village in Galilee. It was a tiny farming village far from the main trade routes, the last place you would look for the Messiah. And the people from Nazareth were just simple uh, Galileans. It's a bit like Donna where I grew up, when I came to school here in Derry, and when I said I was from Donamana, I was like, well, you're from where? What? People, I used to get abuse for seven years. You know, eventually learned to deal with it and live with it, but it's a great little village. It's a wonderful village. It doesn't matter where you're from, guys. God can still use any of us. Can anything good from Derry? Absolutely. What a wonderful place to come. Or Donamana. Perhaps the people rejected Jesus because they'd already rejected themselves. And how many times do we do that? How many believe, how many of us believe we're not good enough? Again, this is exactly what the enemy wants us to believe. As a church, we need to believe we've been called to the streets, which we are. Perhaps you think you're not good enough for that. Perhaps you think, hey, I couldn't go out and pray for people. I couldn't go out and talk to people. I heard Darius coming up. I couldn't work with children. I couldn't do that. What if someone asks me about my faith and I can't? The truth is, guys, we don't have to worry about that. God's with us. God will equip us. He'll help us. He will. And if there's people in here today who feel they're not good enough, let's just squash that right now. Let's just stop that right now. If you are, you're in good company. Abraham was old. Elijah was suicidal. Joseph was abused. Job went bankrupt. Moses had a speech problem. Gideon was afraid. Rahab was a prostitute. The Samaritan woman was divorced. Joseph got drunk. Jeremiah was young. Jacob was a cheater. David was a murderer. Jonah ran from God. Peter denied Christ three times. Martha worried about everything. Zacchaeus was too small and money hungry. I know how he feels. <laughs> Not the hungry, money hungry bit, by the way. The disciples fell asleep when praying amongst other things. 
Paul was a Pharisee. He persecuted Christians, killed Christians before becoming one. These are just of a long list, guys, in the Bible. Full of people who thought they weren't good enough to be used by God. And if you feel unworthy, you need to know this. God doesn't, I love this saying, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. God is not interested in your ability, but he's interested in your availability. How available are we? I heard Darius coming up, it's not too late to sign up. All God's giants were weak men and women who did great things for God because they reckoned on his power and presence with them. Charles Swindle says this, you may feel unqualified, uneducated, untrained, undergifted, or even unworthy. Yet those are excellent qualifications for God to do a mighty work. I read this the other day. I want to just finish this before our conclusion. You may think you're worth less, but God thought you're worth dying for. You may think you're worthless, whatever it is, but God thought you were worth dying for. And that's enough for me. So let's conclude. Let's conclude. Can I invite the worship team um, back up, please? If you're not a Christian today, maybe you have rejected Jesus in the past. Don't make the same mistake today. Here's the truth. This was the second time Jesus came back to Nazareth. The last time they tried to kill him, they were going to throw him over a cliff, right? Why did he come back? And this is what I thought. I got this last night, and I thought this would be someone today. I believe he came back because the Nazarenes had rejected Jesus, but Jesus hadn't rejected them. And you need to know that today, right? Um, If you come to him today, he won't reject you. You may have been rejected by things in the past, but he's not going to reject you today. We have a team of people here who would love to pray with you and point you in the next steps of the most amazing journey you will ever go on. And if that's you, please do not leave this building without speaking to some of the team today. But what about us Christians? We started this talk with the journey from amazed to offended. And where do we sit? Because the truth is, the road between the two is very short. We were all created to live in the shadow of awe. Every word we speak, every action we take, every decision we make, and every desire we entertain was meant to be colored now. We were meant to live and minister with eyes gazing upwards and outward. We were meant to live with hearts that are searching, hearts that are hungry, seeking satisfaction and being satisfied. We lose all this when we lose our sense of awe. Perhaps these are, I was thinking about, these are some of the wonders for me that I need to get back in tune with, I need to rediscover, the wonder of our salvation. You're saved this morning. Do you get what that means? The wonder of God's creation. Look out at the city. I drove into the car park this morning. The sun was shining for the first time in June. And you look over and it's just amazing, guys, the creation here. The wonder of your uniqueness. The wonder of what God has called you to do and us to do as a church. The wonder of prayer. We can step into the throne room of grace. The wonder of Jesus. In Mark 9, 15, we read, as the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. And this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do this morning. I want to leave some time. And we're just going to, where we're at, we're going to pray. And we're going to ask God to search us. We talked about this in pre-service prayer. Lord, thou hast searched me and hast known my rising up and lying down. We We want to ask God to search us. Is there anything in our lives that has taken away from the wonder of God? From the sense of amazement, the sense of excitement that we have. And can I just ask, what we're going to do, we're going to close our eyes. And I just want to read a portion of scripture. It's from my... It's been so important to us as a church this year. It's from Hebrews 12. Right? I want to read this over us. And then we're going to just take a few minutes in our quietness. And we're going to talk to God. And then I'll pray at the end. And I think we're going to have one more song. And, and we'll take it from there. So where you're at, if you just want to close your eyes 
I just want to read these words. And I think this sums up the wonder of God. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance. What does it say there? Let us throw off everything. What do we have to throw off this morning? That hinders us, that entangles us. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Doing what? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him. What did he do? If we can't get amazed at this, then I don't know. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Think about him. Marvel at him who endured such opposition from sinners. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. come to you God with with thankful hearts with with reverence with excitement but most importantly with awe with amazement for what you've done and I pray Lord God that you would search us that you would Holy Spirit that you would you would point to things in our lives that we don't need things that are hindering us things that are entangling us and we would Holy Spirit that you would remove them right now in Jesus name that we would have people that would have nothing holding us back, nothing that's going to stop us in the pursuit of you, God, of you, Jesus, nothing that's going to stop us in the call that you have for this great city. I pray, Lord God, that you would do something over this series, over this summer, that you would prepare a people who are in full, full amazement, full wonder of you, so that we can go out and tell others and do the same. So, Father, we thank you for everything you've done. We thank you for what you're going to do. And everyone said...